Broadcasting live around the globe from San Antonio, deep in the heart of Texas. This is Paranormal Analytical. I'm your host, Eddie Hill, and I will be presenting reports and evidence of some of the most astonishing paranormal claims. I'm joined by my co-host, Renee Rodriguez, and our director and producer, Miguel Cantu, who'll be monitoring the chat room and phone line. We have a fantastic show for you tonight that will open your minds to the infinite possibilities to explain our universe. Get comfortable and prepare yourself for the best paranormal show in the world. This is Paranormal Analytical. Hello and welcome everybody. My name is Eddie Hill and this is Paranormal Analytical. Welcome everybody. We have uh, my co-host Renee Rodriguez sitting at home talking from the comfort of his studio at home. Say hi Renee. Howdy y'all. And we also have Patrick Newcomb which is our team medic. He has graced us with his presence tonight which I'm very happy to see because he's always so busy we can never get him over here to the studio. Can you imagine that? But we got him tonight, so say hi, Patrick. How's it going? And we have a wonderful show set up for you guys tonight. We have David Weatherly, who is a renaissance man of the strange and supernatural. He has traveled the world in pursuit of ghosts, cryptids, UFOs, magic, and more. From the specters of dusty castles to remote haunted islands, from ancient sites to modern mysteries. He has journeyed to the most unusual places on the globe seeking the unknown. David became fascinated with the paranormal at a young age. Ghost stories and accounts of weird creatures and UFOs led him to discover many of his early influences. Writers such as John Keel, Jacques Vallée, I guess that's how you pronounce it. Am I right there? Did I get it right or no? You got it right. Okay. Hans Holzer and others set him on course to spend his life exploring and investigating the unexplained. David, we want to welcome you to the show, my brother. It is great. I have been looking so forward to having you on here with us. Good evening, gentlemen. Thanks for having me on. God, you know, you have done so much. You've written so many books. 
uh, some on the Black Eyed Kids, some on uh, Bigfoot, which is called Woodnox. And all these are available on uh, Amazon where people can go on there to purchase them as well. But you have done a lot of research on all these things, including, uh, I understand, uh, skinwalkers, werewolves, that kind of a thing, uh, these uh, dogmen. Uh, So you've done quite a bit when you're concerning the cryptids and and different types of hauntings and, and that sort of thing, haven't you, throughout your life? Oh, absolutely. See, that is fantastic. And and this is one of the reasons I really wanted you on the show, because you have got such a vast knowledge and there's so many things that you do and so many things that go on around you and in, in your everyday life. And you've been doing this for so long that you bring just a world of knowledge to everybody that you come in contact with. So I think tonight we're going to be doing a little bit of a educating i i guess you would say in in these different fields and not only that but i i really want you to let people know where they're going to be able to uh purchase your books and things of that nature so that they can kind of keep up with everything that you've been doing and all the work that you've done so far in this fascinating field well thanks a lot guys uh it's always great to talk to you eddie personally so i'm looking forward to delving into some stuff tonight and if i can uh share a little bit of knowledge and information i'm more than happy to do that Absolutely. Well, you're going to be sharing a lot because I'll tell you what, since you're the (laughs) main uh, person that we have on here, you're our special, special guest. You're going to be talking a lot about all the different things that have gone on. So I want you to dig deep into your soul and give me all you've got. (laughs) Might take a little while, but uh, I think I've had enough coffee to do so. So, you know, where do you guys want to start? Okay, well, well, let's start in what got you involved in all this. I know that starting at a young age, you started becoming influenced, you know, into the paranormal by, you know, some of your different, uh, uh, some of the different contacts and things that have, that you had as a young child and growing up. So let's let's start there. Let's go start at the beginning. I mean, we've got a two-hour show, so let's use it. Sure. You know, I, I say that a lot of times what you're supposed to do finds you as much as you find it. And my story is kind of uh, different, I guess, in some ways, because, you know, I got involved in this field in the 1970s and it wasn't part of pop culture back then. So, uh, you know, you uh, (laughs) if you wanted to delve into ghost stories and and cryptids and things like that, it just wasn't widely available. And for me, I grew up in a rural area of North Carolina. So literally, you know, pretty much no one around me was interested in these kind of things, but I was just intrigued and really fascinated by it. And like I say, sometimes what you're destined to do, I think, finds you. So what happened for me was uh, an elderly couple came and and built a house uh, close to ours. And I, I started going over and visiting these people. And I found out that the woman was a spiritualist. Now, she was probably the only one in eastern North Carolina back in those days. And uh, it was it was really intriguing to me. She was uh, someone that had a lot of knowledge on traditional spiritualism. Uh, we're talking seances and things like that. But she had a wide range of interest. And I would go over there and I would talk to her about poltergeists and, you know, different hauntings and things like that. And then I think the real hook came in. One day I went over to visit her and she had a copy of Fate magazine. And, you know, back in the in the 70s, of course, fate started uh, much earlier than that, but little digest size magazine and every issue had just a wide range of stories about hauntings and Sasquatch, UFOs, you name it. It was in there, psychic phenomena. 
And uh, I, I, I saw this magazine and I was really intrigued and thought, you know, what is this? I've never seen this before. And, uh, you know, she told me about Fade and that there were a lot of other people who were interested in these types of things, you know, even though it was sort of fringe at the time. Uh, but, you know, I had a visit with her and she said, you make sure you come by after school tomorrow and visit. And uh, the next day she presented me with this, this massive box full of years of Fate magazine. And she said, I, I don't need these anymore. I want you to take them. So, uh, strangely enough, I, I was too sick to go to school for a few days and <laughs> just kind of holed up in my room and was reading this stuff. And, and I kind of hate when that, that happens. It. You know, that, that was just it. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of started me on the path of delving into this stuff more and more. And, you know, of course, it, it was it was difficult back in those days. It's way pre-internet or anything else. In Search of eventually came along on television, and you know that was that was something pretty innovative in terms of this stuff at the time. Uh, but gosh, man, back in the day, you know, I, I always joke that you know in the old days, if I went to a party and told people what I did, I was guaranteed a nice, quiet evening alone because uh, you know everybody was like, oh, you know, that guy's asking about ghosts and and monsters and stuff stay away from him and uh you know these days when people find out what i do uh, there's a whole queue out the door because everybody has a story they want to share now yeah so i mean if you talk to enough people no matter where you're at i mean somebody's going to come up to you and share something with you uh, i've noticed that no matter where i go people either recognize me or it might even be at one of the events and it seems like everybody has a story that they want to come up and talk to you about, which is really good because you hear so many different stories and it opens up a lot of different doors for you as far as things that you may not have dealt with that they might be able to talk to you a little bit about and give you some inside uh, uh, experience into some of the things that you may not have done yet. Yeah, the big difference is that, you know, these days people are, for the most part, comfortable with it. And... Not so long ago, people were not comfortable with it. You know, these things were seen as being, oh, you know, it's a little crazy. I don't want to talk about having seen a UFO, things like that. And, um, you know, for me, I think that I, I actually like the fact that I grew up in a period without the Internet and without all of these. It taught me really how to approach people in a different way and how to talk to people in a different way. It, it's a bit more challenging, but also a bit more rewarding to really be able to go into a community and learn how to connect with people to get the real information. Right. Uh, you can't, you can't get that off the internet. Yeah, absolutely. And so all this started kind of uh, molding you toward the work that you do now as you're growing up and, uh, and all the different stories that you started getting from people as well. So when did you realize that this was something that you really wanted to do and get into? Oh, I realized it back then when I was a kid, uh, you know, it was just exactly how to do it, I guess, was the challenge. Uh, and of course, you know, there were people that were writing and, and doing research and so forth. So, you know, for a long time through the years, I just uh, researched independently and, and uh you know, investigated and, and learned all the tools of the trade that I thought would be helpful, you know, in terms of uh, a more journalistic and, and investigative approach. And over the years, that's what's really paid off for me, I think. I, you know, in terms of, of something like paranormal investigation, my God, when I, you know, when I started, I had a, 
a pen and a notepad and a camera. <laughs> and that was, right. You know, that was it. And, uh, you know, eventually, I, I mean, I got my first EVPs on a reel-to-reel recorder. Uh, so, you know, um, it's cool to see all the technology that's come along in the years since then. But I think it's also, uh, there's always a downside to everything, right? So a lot of people become so dependent on that. You know, I've literally seen people in haunted locations walk around and, and they never look up from, you know, the piece of equipment they're holding to even understand their environment or to use, you know, their natural senses or anything else. Uh, so, you know, along the way, you, you just, you continue to develop and to develop and continue to grow. And, and somewhere on my path, you know, I started figuring out that I could do this full time and just gravitated towards it. Uh, you know, just like anybody else along the way, I had other other jobs and other ways that I had to make money. But, um, you know, you're not going to get rich in this field. You're just pursuing it because it's your passion. Right, exactly. And, you know, and I remember when I first got into this way back when, I mean, it was uh, basically a, a camera, uh, very, very cheaply made uh, uh, video camera with a very limited IR capabilities and uh, little recorders. Some were still, uh, you know, reel to reel type things. And it was it was something where we basically we used our senses more than we did our equipment and we kind of the equipment kind of became was you know came in second place i guess and then as time went on we started actually relying more and more on our own equipment uh, just like you were saying you know people rarely look up around their surroundings you know they're too busy looking down on their computers and different types of gadgets and things like that you know nowadays but i think if you basically work you know and use both ends of it i mean if people started actually relying a little bit more on their own senses as well as the equipment i think it would all work out a lot better you know in the long run as far as the investigative goes oh yeah, yeah. absolutely and uh you know if you're interested in hauntings and things like that i mean you should be able to investigate with a bare minimum of equipment or, or maybe no equipment at all uh, I, I think that you should have some skills at least to go into a location and gather some information. Now, everybody gets fixated on, oh, no, we need to collect evidence. We need to collect this and that. And, um, yeah, that's that's valid. You know, that aspect is valid. Uh, but the problem is, is that so many people have gotten fixated on the equipment, and a good portion of them don't really understand what the equipment does. They just know, oh, this, you know, the, the meter lit up. Uh, you know, I, I got this 8.3 reading. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, what exactly does that mean? And what was the reading beforehand? Uh, did you check that? Uh, you know, you start delving into these things and <laughs> you can really get some people flustered. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, those are valid questions. Exactly. Well, a, lot meters, a lot of the meters that we use in uh, investigations, like you're saying, it doesn't work the way they're meant to. Like the, uh, I've seen a lot of people use the EMF detectors, but um, man, I really have a hard time believing these things. They're not meant to look for ghosts they're meant to look for electricity and uh, <laughs> man people just go a little crazy using these tools i don't think they use a lot of people use these tools right at all <laughs> yeah I, I have some funny stories about that so <laughs> yeah we come a little too dependent on these on these detectors um you're, you're right about going in there without any tools um you know, I've, I've done the same thing. I've, I've been too busy looking at my computer instead of looking up. You know, that's a that's a big no-no. I've learned my lessons. 
But uh, you know, it, it's pretty it's pretty cool to just go in there with a the flashlight and just walk around and get the feeling of the place. And you get to see a lot of cool things. Actually, most of the evidence I've, that I've seen with my own eyes, I've never caught on, on video or recorded. It just happens to pop up. And you know, even if I had a camera in my hand, I was, I was so stunned seeing these things that I don't think I would have taken a picture. I would just sat there, just my mouth wide open. I right. can't believe that I actually saw this thing in front of me. I was like, wow, that is really cool. Really, and, really and those cool. are really rewarding experiences too and that's what you know I, I think that's what a lot of people are in the field to uh to have are those kinds of experiences and of course you know some people get really frustrated oh i didn't catch this shadow figure on camera you know but i saw it i swear i saw it and you know, it's just like it's it's okay it's it's okay uh you know people people get so fixated and and don't get me wrong i love catching evidence on various devices it's it's incredible validation and it's something to you know try to analyze further and and you know compare with the the known information about the site and so forth uh but you know i i'm not in this field to prove anything to anybody so as long as i'm you know continuing to be passionate about what i'm doing i'm going to keep doing it whether you know despite skeptics or believers or anything else yeah, you really can't change people's minds anyways. Once their heart's set on believing or not believing, man, it's it's damn impossible to get anybody to change their minds if they believe in ghosts or UFOs. So it really oh, is. Yeah. I, I don't try yeah. to change people's minds at all either. It's just, nah, if you believe me, that's great. If you don't, well, whatever. It's not, it's not a big deal to me anymore. It used to bother me, but now, eh, not so much. It doesn't bother me that much. No, it's the old adage, you know, you'll, you'll never convince a skeptic and a believer doesn't need any proof. Uh, and (laughs) you know it's it's funny because i you know a a fair number of people approach me who are new to the field and and want advice and you know mentorship and things like that and one of the first questions i'll ask someone like that is okay why you know why are you doing this why are you pursuing these things why are you getting involved in this field and you know a good percentage of them say well i want to prove that ghosts exist Okay, uh, go outside, beat your head against the pavement. <laughs> That's the experience you're about to have because you know you, you're not going to prove it across the board. I, I don't think. I, I just I don't. Uh, I know you know there are people in the skeptic community that have had experiences, and you know they won't talk about them very openly, but they still refuse to believe. They just inherently refuse to believe these things despite their own experiences. So you know don't think that your piece of evidence is going to convince them. No, I think most people most people on the planet have seen a ghost one way or another. They've seen something strange. I, I've known uh, I've known some people who didn't believe, there's very few people that I, they didn't believe at all, and then all of a sudden they see a ghost, and now they believe. But most people, I believe, that have seen something strange, and they say, no, 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 there's no way I saw that UFO. There's no way that was a UFO. That must have been a plane. There's no way that was a ghost that went through my wall. No, no, I must have, had, you know, not enough sleep. It's, um, man, it, it's it's strange when you first have your experience. In the first, actually, what was your first experience with, with the paranormal? Uh, when I was a kid, I saw a partial apparition in the home that I grew up in. Now. Um, it was it was very fleeting and to tell you the truth you know it was one of those things that you know i was like wow did i really did i did i see that did i really see that uh but i had 
I had some interesting things happen where, you know, I lived back in the country and uh, would hear what I thought was, at the time, was my mother calling me in the house when no one else was home except for me. And, um, you know, those experiences were kind of odd. The, the elderly couple I referred to that built a house close to ours, uh, she had, they had a lot of activity in their home, a lot of uh, poltergeist-like activity. And she actually told me that when they came and built a home there, she found out later on that there had been a small pioneer cemetery on the plot that they built their home on. And uh, the, the guy who sold the property, he in to basically pull up the, the headstones and put them further back into the trees. Uh, so the tombstones were laying back. There was only maybe a half dozen of them. Uh, but, you know, they had pretty much just desecrated what was like a little pioneer plot or, or something you know, where that home was built. So there were some pretty strange things that I saw on that property. I bet. What was your, what, what did you see, though? What was the first thing that you saw that, that, that turned you around? That turned me around? Yeah, that actually yeah. made you into a like, a, like, wow, there's something really, really here. You know that that was kind of it, actually. I mean, I, I this sort of misty image in the hallway of my home, uh, and then not long after that, being at my neighbor's house. Hey, David, I think we lost you. Are you there? Her telling me about this activity that was occurring in her lawn. Now, you guys hear me? Yeah, no. now, now I do. You, you cut in. You've been cutting in and out a little bit. Yeah, we've got some storms out here out west, so uh, that might be part of the issue. Oh, okay. Yeah, continue on. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. So I don't know what you heard out of that. Uh, my neighbor's home. The the setup was uh, she had an open living room that looked into the kitchen, and just to the left was a small utility room where she had her washer and dryer. In that util utility room was a back door. Now, I was sitting in the living room area talking to her uh, one afternoon, and her cat, who was in the kitchen, uh, was just sort of walking across the kitchen floor, and all of a sudden we we heard this cat. Uh, you know what a cat sounds like when it suddenly is, is fighting or con confronting something. You know, it hissed, and it made that sort of round noise. And we heard the back door open and shut. Now, again, no one else in the home. We both got up very quickly, rushed to the back. Uh, the cat was halfway across her backyard, just rolling, and it jumped up on its feet and ran uh, off into the woods. And she told me that, uh, you know, the cat, she had to feed the cat outside for uh, quite some time because it wouldn't come near the house. And uh, eventually, it started coming back to the house, but it would only come in the other end of the house through her bedroom window, and it wouldn't go anywhere near the kitchen after that incident or near the utility room. Now, that's where all the activity that she was having was occurring. So, you know, it was a pretty intriguing case for me. It was kind of like, wow, this this is a case. You know, this is poltergeist-like activity. And, uh, you know, like I said, I mean, back then I had a, a 
pad, a pen, and a, a little camera, you know, to document things with. But there were so many strange things occurring at the back of this woman's home that, uh, you know, I, I just I didn't know exactly how to explain it other than the fact that, as I referenced earlier, they had pulled up tombstones to, uh, you know, headstones to build this house on this piece of land. So something, something there was very unsettled, and the animals that she had really didn't like it. Absolutely. And, you know, animals are just, you know, they, they'll always pick up different things. And a lot of people always ask me if cats and dogs are, are oh, a little bit more sensitive. Yeah, they're very sensitive. Uh, animals pick up a lot of stuff. Absolutely. All right. What we're going to do is we're going to turn this into a short commercial break and we'll be right back. We have David Weatherly, everybody. And he is the author of Wood Knocks and also the black eyed children which you can find on amazon and we're going to be talking about them as well as skinwalkers werewolves and dogmen coming up right after this OpenEyes Network now airs a live simulcast on YouTube. Our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash C forward slash OpenEyes Network, features not just our live content, but other videos as well, and is always active. So now you can tune in in many different ways. OpenEyes Network shows air Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time live. Be sure to visit OpenEyesNetwork.com to find easy-to-use links to get to all of the places that you want to listen to our shows. And don't forget, all of our shows will now be archived as well on YouTube. There is a better radio show, beyond that which is known to the people. It is a radio show more informative than others, and as timeless as infinity. It is the equilibrium between light and dark, between the sheeple and the paranormal, and it is heard at the base of man's ignorance and at the summit of his knowledge. This is the radio show of imagination, a show we call The Secret Teachings. Open Eyes is dedicated to finding the truth in all matters. We are not afraid to be politically incorrect or to ask questions. Whether it is the paranormal, government cover-ups, the dark agenda that the puppet masters have in store for us, or aliens and UFOs, nothing remains hidden. Listen to Open Eyes, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, starting at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on LateNightInTheMidlands.com or OpenEyesNetwork.com. Open hearts, open minds, open eyes. 
Ben Franklin said, If you do the same thing tomorrow as you did today, you're going to get the same tomorrow as you got today. Changing the world starts with you, and changing you starts with changing the way you think. Late Night in the Midlands can help. Listen to all of our shows at latenightinthemidlands.com because things really do need to change. We are back 
This is Paranormal Analytical, and my name is Eddie Hill, your host, with uh, Renee Rodriguez and Patrick Newcomb as your co-host. Glad that you all could be with us tonight. We have such a great guest on, and we are so happy to have him with us. His name's David Weatherly, and we are talking about werewolves, the black-eyed children, and Woodnocks, which is a book that he did on Bigfoot. David, welcome back, man, and I'm glad uh, we made it back from break and everything is going well, and we are ready to continue onward, my brother. Sounds good, yes. Hey, so let's get in a little bit about the black-eyed children. What exactly are the black-eyed children? What are what are these things? Well, that's a good question. Then, <laughs> so uh, you know, this phenomena. People love this topic, and part of the reason is because it, it's just kind of creepy. You know, it's um, it's really right on the edge of uh, a lot of different types of phenomena, and that's what's intriguing about it. Uh, the accounts, the modern wave of these accounts really started in the late 1990s. The most well-known account by far is the encounter uh that was documented by a man named Brian Bethel. Uh, so Bethel, uh, excuse me, Bethel was a journalist in Amarillo, Texas. It was down in you guys' uh, home state. And he went out one night to write a check, drop it in a after hours payment slot, sitting in his car, writing the check out. And two kids approached his vehicle. Now he wasn't in a bad neighborhood or anything, but for some reason, Bethel felt very uneasy when these kids approached the car. So he only rolled his window down a little bit and they started to talk to him in a rather odd manner. And they were asking him for a ride. They wanted to get in his car. As the conversation unfolded, uh, Bethel kind of grew more nervous and he had presence of mind to, uh, Think about what these kids were saying because they claimed that they wanted to see a movie, but they had forgotten their money. So they needed to go home and get their money. Bethel glanced over the movie marquee and realized that the last showing of the film was already half over. So this alone didn't make any sense. He was clearly more nervous, which the kids noticed, and they got more insistent. They were saying things like, come on, mister, we're just a couple of kids. Uh, You have to let us in the car. And during this segment of the conversation, Bethel looked the lead child right in the face and realized this kid had solid black eyes. Uh, No colors, no whites, just the entire sclera was black. That was enough to push him over the edge. He threw the car into gear, backed out of the parking space, and uh, turned to leave the area. Now, as he was leaving, he looked in his rearview mirror, and these kids had vanished. So Brian posted this account on the internet and on a discussion board. This was 1997. And of course it it elicited a flurry of responses. People were intrigued by the encounter. Other people were chiming in saying, Oh my God, I've seen something like this. Uh, They were sharing their stories and it just sort of took off from there. Now the problem was, because of how it caught so much attention, it was, uh, you know, questioned by a lot of people who th- thought it was just a, a modern urban myth that it was, you know, something made up on the internet and so forth. And a lot of the other stories that were posted in the early days of the internet 
were pretty fascinating and intriguing, but it was incredibly hard to track the people down and actually interview them. Uh, I kind of got involved in this because I, I had seen the accounts come up. I had read the stuff in the 90s and the early 2000s, and then I, I met a gentleman who had had an encounter with one of these things and or, or a couple of these kids. So, you know, I got really fascinated about it and, and started delving in and, and reached out to a lot of my contacts and found out that there were a lot of these stories. Uh, first, it seemed like they were localized in different areas of the country, kind of hot spots, uh, Texas being one of them. But the more the more I kind of probed into this, the more I realized that no, this is a a phenomena that has really spread all over the world. And you know, in in the years since Bethel's encounter, uh, it, it's just so many accounts have come up. There are other researchers who collect these encounters, and you know, it's it's such a a vast phenomena uh, in terms of of geographically that there are accounts from Australia, the UK, all over Europe, Asia, you name it. And there's probably been an encounter there. The fascinating thing for me is that these encounters, they're, they're usually fairly brief, but there are so many strange elements that it crosses the bridge into a, a lot of different types of phenomena. Uh, some people think these things are something demonic in nature. Others believe there's some type of alien-human hybrid. And then there's a whole range of other theories. Uh, when I wrote the book, I kind of presented all these different possibilities and wanted people to make up their own minds. Uh, but, you know, it, it's we, we don't have any solid answers as to exactly what these things are. And it, it's, it's pretty intriguing because, you know, you ask 10 people, you'll probably get you know, seven different opinions <laughs> on what these things actually are. Oh, absolutely. And we just have a question that came into the chat room. And uh, one of them is, can you ask if he has ever encountered the black-eyed hags? Have you ever heard of that? Well, I know what a hag, uh, you know, the whole hag mythos is. He, and it's, um, Well, he says they're, it, it's similar to the black-eyed kids phenomenon, but they appear as an old woman who try to get into your home, etc. Same M.O. as the Black Eyed Kids overall. A dear friend of his and co-host encountered one at her home two years ago. Scared the heck out of her is what he said. And, uh, I mean, these are, you know, I, I guess it's similar to the Black Eyed Kids, but it's like an old lady that shows up at your door. Yeah, so what's happened is, uh, you know, in the last, oh, particularly the last, five to ten years more and more accounts of black-eyed adults have surfaced so uh, people are experiencing you know not just children but um, elderly people you know middle-aged adults uh, young adults and so forth that have black eyes and they it, it's it's bizarre because the phenomena is sort of expanding in that sense now if these are actual children that aged like humans did then it would make sense i mean brian's account was you know from 1997 and the kids were probably 10 years old so you know you do the math you would be dealing with adults at this point exactly so you're talking about possibly the black-eyed children from you know years ago you know growing up and now you know showing up at people's homes uh, that that would make sense as far as that goes but i mean are these things uh, 
maybe alien beings? Are they demonic? Uh, does anybody know what would happen if they allowed them into the home? Have you heard of anybody who actually have done that? Well, you know, first of all, the two most popular theories by far are that they are either something demonic or that they are some type of alien or alien-human hybrid. Uh, now, we can go into the arguments for those two possibilities if you want to. As far as whether anyone's let them in, you know, in the accounts that I have, what I have found over the years is that the closer the proximity a victim is to one of these children, the more intense the results are. Uh, there is an encounter that's documented in my book about a woman whose uh, young child actually invited a black-eyed kid into their vehicle, and it resulted in a whole string of uh, strange things that happened to the family. Uh, but, you know, ultimately it seems that, uh, as I said, the closer the proximity, the more uh, disastrous the results are. You know, there's people that have reached out and touched one of these kids. And in the aftermath, they've had, you know, everything ranging from uh, really extreme street, uh, sequences of bad luck to physical illness that results, they believe, from touching one of these children. Now, these kids or adults, I guess you could say, I mean, depending on which one actually show up at your door, I mean... They're wanting in for a reason, and no one's really sure why or what it is. But is there anything through your research where you've actually been able to uh, find some common denominators of the people that they were contacting or maybe an area or anything of that nature? You know, were there any, you know, maybe UFO sightings in that area or was, you know, is there, are they around high voltage? Is there high EMF? I mean... Is there anything that could uh, that we could possibly put together to try and figure out what exactly is the common denominator, what these kids look for when they approach a vehicle or a house? That's one of the strangest things about these cases, Eddie. Uh, you know, when I approach something like this, of course, I have a wide range of questions that I ask, and you know, I, I look for patterns. Uh, it's just something I do as an investigator and, and a journalist. And you know, looking at these cases, one of the first things that I started looking for um, are thing you know things that you mentioned. I looked for other phenomena, whether it was uh, poltergeist or or haunting type of phenomena in the home or uh, UFO sightings. And some of these things, you know, quite honestly, I, I sort of expected to find. I, I really, I genuinely initially expected to find a pattern in terms of UFO encounters or sightings, for instance, uh, in conjunction with these black-eyed kid encounters. But it's not there. It just isn't there. And even beyond that, uh, when I started looking at the people who were encountering these kids, they're... There are were so few common denominators uh, that it was it was almost a, a pattern of no pattern, uh, you know, a wide range of age, ethnic background, religious belief, uh, you know, you name it, and and it was there. The one pattern that did emerge over 
a period of collecting these cases was that I found a, a high number of people who were encountering these kids um, that were professionals in a field that gave them some level of authority. So uh, law enforcement officers, military, um, you know, there's, there's some judges, uh, doctors, and it, it just sort of became fascinating that there seemed to be emerging a, a certain type of person almost career-wise. Now, one of the things, of course, that those professions have in common is that a lot of them are high stress. And, you know, what's fascinating on the other side is that at the same time, police officers, for instance, are a lot more observant than a typical citizen. So it, it was pretty fascinating to get an account from, you know, a professional law enforcement officer who had seen these things and, you know, had details they could offer that, uh, you know, maybe just a, a normal guy in the street wouldn't have. But beyond that, you know, like I said, very, very few patterns in terms of the uh, victims. So basically, you're, you're saying that these kids are, you know, from the research you've done, are approaching more of the high profile type people than just your everyday citizen for whatever reason that may be in, in a sense and you know i i have to add that you know we have to take into account that one this is based on my research and the you know accounts that have come to me through the years and uh, i know for a fact there's a good handful of other researchers out there now so it will get a massive database together maybe at some point and see if that pattern held true uh you know i have had plenty of accounts from people you know just working at a convenience store just doing you know very average sort of everyday jobs but uh yeah there it was intriguing enough to look at the fact that I could say, wow, there is, you know, a good percentage of these people that have um, jobs in, in some type of authority role. Now, there's another comment on uh, the site. Um, there was a guy that was at a party, and he seen a beautiful lady there, and he said her eyes turned black, and then to kind of like a reptilian eye, and then back to normal eyes. Have you ever heard of that before? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's. Uh, it's interesting because after after the first edition of Black Eyed Children came out, I had a lot of people reporting that phenomena to me. That this situation where they would be, um, you know, talking to someone or uh, you know working with them in a professional manner or something, and they saw their eyes shift from normal human eyes to solid black eyes, and that that's in some ways is almost more disturbing i i think because yeah. you know you're having a normal conversation with someone and all of a sudden you know they get this strange look and their eyes turn solid black uh there's just no there's no logical or medical reason for that or anything else so uh, those are pretty fascinating stories there's there's quite a few of those in uh, Strange Intruders was another book I wrote uh, because I had enough accounts that came into me that I had to address that. Awesome.
So now, do you think? Oh, let me get a quick question, Eddie. Okay. Um, now, do you think that the um, the I know I've seen a lot of things about the reptilians on on the internet. Do you think any of those have to do with the black eyed kids? Uh, I I don't. I personally don't think it has anything to do with the black eyed kids. No. So, if these people over here are talking about their eyes changing from regular eyes to reptilian eyes or black eyes and then to reptilian eyes and back to normal, um, how many cases have you had on uh, as far as things like that occurring? Where people witness someone's eyes shifting Correct. like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, gosh. I, I, I'm You know, not a tremendous amount. I, I mean, probably... Off the top of my head, 30 to 50 cases, maybe. Oh, wow. Well, that's still quite a bit when you yeah. think about it. And that is, it, it, and it that, is, and yeah. that, you're right. That is, that's a very disturbing thing to witness. How are, David, do we still have you? Yeah, I'm still here. Okay. So, on these black eyed children, what is the most fascinating case that you've heard of so far that has, you know, come your way? You know, in, that has really intrigued your interest the most when you're dealing with the black-eyed children. Oh, there, there's a handful of them that uh, are pretty interesting. You know, people people always ask me what's the creepiest one I've heard. Uh, and I get that question a lot, um, and there's probably a couple of contenders for it. And one was, uh, I'll go to uh, actually both of these are from Texas, so oh, wow. uh, you know you guys are in the right territory maybe for seeing these things, but. Uh, There was a gentleman who reported his encounter to me, uh, and and I should back up for a moment here and say that, you know, these encounters, there's a few common themes that come up. First of all, obviously, the solid black eyes. But beyond that, uh, people say that these children, uh, there's something off with their skin, that it's very pale, it's very pasty. Some people even say it looks artificial. You know, in conversations with witnesses, again, a wide range of questions that I ask, no one has ever remembered seeing a blemish on these kids. No acne, no freckle, no pimple, nothing. And we're talking about children that average in the range of, say, 8 to 13 years old. So that in itself is kind of fascinating. The other thing no one has ever seen is one of these kids holding a piece of modern technology such as a cell phone or iPod. Now, you know, again, preteens, you know, teenagers, preteens, go down to, uh, you know, a shopping mall and, and tell me how many you can spot without a cell phone in their hand or earphones plugged in. Or at least uh, in their pocket. Right. You know, so that in itself is a very strange anomaly. And of course, there's cases where, you know, they'll show up and they'll ask to use someone's phone, uh, <laughs> you know, in, in the person's house. So yeah, nowadays, that's kind of something that's unheard of. You know, it's not really something that you you would normally see as far as people not having at least a cell phone of some sort with them. And I mean, they're they're so common now. I mean, you don't really see I, I mean, there's homeless people with cell phones. I mean, so they may oh, not absolutely. have a house. They may yeah. not have any food, but they've got a cell phone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it does. So, just- you know, those are just some of the anomalies. They, one of the other anomalies is that people say the language is very monotone and that they make strange requests. 
or strange statements. So it was a gentleman in uh, Texas, and I don't know, do we have time for this story before break, guys? Yes, we've got about uh, one minute to go, and we'll go on break. So go for it. Okay. Uh, might be longer than that, but that's a okay. gentleman we'll, in, we'll finish the story up, and then we'll go on break as soon as you get done. Gentleman in Texas uh, came home. He had been up to the market. He had a few uh, shopping bags in his hand. Now, his front yard is, is pretty much bare. There's nothing there but a small st- set of steps that go up to his front door. He walked up to his steps. He climbed those three steps, and he went to open the door, and all of a sudden, he realized there's a kid standing on the ground next to the steps. Now, this alone sort of shocked him because he, he should have seen the child when he approached the door. Uh, so he was a bit startled. He, he glanced over at this kid, and this kid looks at him. Uh, child was very pale-skinned and looks directly at the man and says, Is it food time? Food time? Uh, like like Food dinner? time. F-O-O-D, food time. Is it food time? <laughs> Now, obviously, this is not normal human language. Uh, This guy didn't know how to even respond. He just sort of stood there for a moment, stunned, and was trying to process this stuff. This is something that we see in a lot of these encounters. You know, people are trying to, uh, (laughs) you know, comprehend what's unfolding. So what had happened was that the gentleman had opened his front door, and it, it had swung open as he was looking at this child. Now, this guy had a, a dog that he had raised from a pup and taught to be an attack dog. He heard this dog at the back of his house barking and heard it charging through the house. Now, his front door opens into a long hallway that runs straight back to the living room. Solid wood floors. He sort of stole a glance away from this kid and, and looked into the hallway and saw his dog turn the corner heading for the front door at full charge. Uh, this dog was angry because obviously it sensed something. Uh, so he he's, you know, sort of trying to watch the dog and, and this kid at the same time. The dog, at full charge, when he gets almost to the front door, tries to put the brakes on, and this becomes a Scooby Doo moment because this poor dog sort of <laughs> slides on the wood, tumbles over itself, down the steps and onto the ground, but just as rapidly. It jumps up, tail between its legs, running back into the house, whining. So, uh, this, you know, this stunned this guy because he had, he watched this dog kill rattlesnakes. It, it would snap them in its jaws and, and rip them apart. Uh, now it's scared to death because there's a strange kid standing in the front yard. So, uh, this was enough for this guy. He, he jumped into the door himself, slammed the door rushed down the hallway around to another window and looked out front and this kid is gone. Wow. So, you know, this, this, again, this bizarre language, you know, the kid had said, is it food time? And, and then he repeated that. He said, I, I think it's food time. You should invite me in. So again, he's trying to gain entry into the gentleman's home. Uh, he's using language that is, you know, it's just not quite right. And this is a common theme in a lot of these encounters that it's almost as if they, they sort of have it right, but they, but they don't comprehend the normal, you know, everyday mode of communication that we have. It sounds like a man in black encounter. Oh, there's a lot of similarities with the MIBs. Wow. That, that's incredible. 
So, well, we're going to take a quick break right now. We have David Weatherly with us here on Paranormal Analytical. Got our co-host, Renee Rodriguez, and we have Patrick Newcomb, who will not be back with us because he's got to take off. He actually has to go to work. So, Patrick, you yeah, want to tell everybody yeah. adios? Yeah, uh, it's good being here. I love the stories, and uh, hopefully I'll see you next time. All righty, nice, so... Patrick. Nobody go away because we're going to be back with David Weatherly here in just a few minutes where we'll we'll be talking about Bigfoots and uh, getting into a little bit about his book there, Wood Knocks. And David, uh, appreciate it, man. Everybody hang tight. We'll be right back right after this. The rising rate of autism is not just concerning, it's a disaster. No matter what the cause of it is, it is something that everyone should be acutely aware of and actively helping out those in the community that have it. That is why Adventures in Autism was created. Adventures in Autism is a show inspired by our life with our son Seth and the many experiences his autism has brought to our lives. Each episode, we bring you the topic of the week news about autism, and resources to help you and your family or friends out in their own adventures with autism. Tune in Mondays at noon and midnight on lnmradionetwork.com or openeyesnetwork.com and get involved in the community. Let our experiences be an inspiration to you. Attention LNM Radio Network listeners. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi available, you can still listen to every minute of the LNM Radio Network by calling 605-562-4203. No smartphone app or internet needed. Saves your data plan and no extra cost if you have unlimited minutes. Call 605-562-4203 to listen to the LNM Radio Network on any phone, anytime, anywhere. There are days that the red pill is bitter in my stomach, but I can't get it back out. I think because I have to. I speak because I have no choice. I walk through this dark age we're in with open eyes. Listen to Open Eyes on LateNightInTheMidlands.com And together, maybe we won't stumble and fall. The Late Night in the Midlands Radio Network is deeply devoted to you, the listener. We feel it is necessary to bring you all of the information that you can use in your life. Each and every day, you will find something to listen to here. And whether you come away from the shows informed, inspired, or entertained, it is our passion. 
we don't bow to corporations and we don't have handlers to tell us what not to talk about. We bring you everything. Late Night in the Midlands, however, is fully listener supported. We need your help to stay on the air and to make sure that we get the bills paid. We need your help to keep the truth alive. If you feel that you have gotten anything out of Late Night in the Midlands, we would appreciate your support. You can become a subscriber and help us out on a monthly basis, or if you'd like, a one-time donation is fully appreciated as well. Every year, the average household in America spends over $3,000 on entertainment alone. If you could help us with just a tiny fraction of that amount, you would make all of the difference. Go to latenightinthemidlands.com and click on the subscribe button. Thank you, and as always, keep yourself informed.
sees Within blurred folds Of earth and sea The time overflows Of the naked life Between blurred folds Of earth and sky everybody welcome to paranormal analytical we have david weatherly as our special guest and i've got renee rodriguez as my co-host along with uh ranger the raccoon you know he's over here with me too kind of hanging out but we were going to be getting into a little bit more of what david weatherly has written about talking about uh wood knocks and bigfoot uh that's going to be the next topic of our conversation are you with us still, David? Absolutely. Great, great. Now, you wrote the book Wood Knocks uh, for people who are interested in Bigfoots. What what exactly have you, have, you know, basically has everybody learned so far about Bigfoot and what it is and where it's located? And, you know, what is this creature and why haven't we found any remains of this thing? <laughs> you like to ask a lot of questions in one sentence. Eddie. <laughs> well, you know, I, you know, it, it's from my police background, you know, I, I tend to throw it all out there and then, you know, Hey, give it to me. Hey, so, uh, to clarify things, actually wood knots is a subtitled journal of Sasquatch research. And there are two volumes out so far. I actually just released the cover for volume three on, uh, Facebook this past week. So people can get a glimpse of that. Uh, the series, you know, it's not just my work. It's contributions from a wide range of cryptozoologists who are all sort of weighing in on uh, and giving their perspective. So, you know, the book maybe attempts to answer the, the very question you asked me in that sentence, because, uh, you know, my idea was to uh, let's gather um, other like minds together and give them a chance to talk about some things maybe that you know zeroes in on particular aspects of the sasquatch phenomena that um doesn't necessarily you know have enough material for a full book in and itself but but needs to be talked about uh an example of that is uh nick redfern wrote an article for the first volume and he talked about the potential of infrasound being used by these creatures and it's a pretty fascinating topic uh so you know the the format is that each volume uh there's 
seven or eight people that weigh in, uh, whether it's about a regional um, series of sightings or, or what have you. Uh, my piece in the first volume of Wood Knots dealt with sightings on the Navajo Reservation. So, you know, to answer your question in terms of uh, where these things are, my God, the, the sightings are pretty widespread in, you know, if, if we just stick with North America for a moment and don't even go into the global phenomena, uh, if we just look at the fact that in North America, there are so many of these sightings and, you know, different people have done maps and so forth to show, you know, concentrations of Bigfoot sightings. Those things are great. I find that they don't always take all of the accounts, uh, in, you know, especially out west in areas that aren't as commonly accepted as being uh, areas that these creatures are found. So, you know, it's, um, it's, it's such a fascinating topic, it really is, and it's probably everyone's favorite cryptid, you know, partially because there just are so many sightings. Um, you know, the, the, Reason I think that we haven't, quote, found one at this point is that we're dealing with an intelligent creature. And uh, that's if we just stick to the idea that these are, you know, physical animals without any kind of extraordinary abilities, which uh, opens another can of worms. Uh, but if you look at the the mere idea that you've got an intelligent animal that is wary enough of humans that it stays hidden. There's a lot of wilderness still in North America. Uh, it, it's not something that people usually um, openly understand unless they spend a lot of time in it. And, you know, I, I get this question all the time at conferences and on shows and stuff. People will say, well, you, you get this kind of skeptical view, you know, well, why, you know, we've explored everything. Why haven't we found these creatures? <laughs> and I just, you know, I had to kind of shake my head and, uh, you know, I tell people to look at a map. A perfect example, as you guys know, I, I'm a uh, southwestern guy. So if you look at the state of Utah, which is a really big state, has a high concentration of Bigfoot sightings. Uh, there's one major interstate that cuts north to south. It's, it's I-15. And in the northern part of the state, there's, there's one interstate that goes across. So you know, that I-15 corridor, the bulk of the population of Utah lives along that corridor. All the major cities are there. And you go off the grid away from that I-15 corridor very far, you start getting into rural mountainous area. Yeah, there are people that live out there. And you know what? A lot of them have seen strange things. I've been to a lot of those rural communities. And you'll find high concentrations. People know it's there they talk about it but they're not calling the local newspaper and saying oh there's you know a sasquatch is stealing my tomatoes uh, they're just not you know they're not talking about these things openly but uh again I, I just bring that up because it's a great example of how much vast wilderness there is in this country has another point of comparison you know you talk to park rangers and you know you ask a lot of these guys veterans that have been in the field for a long time in the wilderness and ask them how often they've seen some of the rarer animals that science does, you know, uh, accept exist out there. You know, ask them how often they see a mountain lion, for instance, 
uh, or even a bear. And it's, it's, you know, it's not that often in some of the parks, but those animals are indeed out there. You know, I remember uh, one of my first, one of the first stories I actually heard growing up, you know, dealt with the abominable snowman, you know, and that was my introduction into the whole cryptid type uh, deal. And, uh, you know, I just found that just so fascinating, you know, that this thing was seen up on this mountain slope, you know, and I remember when I first heard about it, it was, you know, it, it was really kind of, it, it was really cool to think that something like that actually existed. And uh, we just had a comment over here on the chat room where it said, uh, they tell us that the Navajo reservation up in Flagstaff, Arizona had quite a few stories as well. So I imagine that uh, the Navajo reservation, you know, has a lot of stories concerning uh, Bigfoots and that kind of a thing. That's uh, covered in the first volume of Woodknots. I wrote a whole piece. It's called Big Man on the Reservation. And, you know, it's uh, it's another prime example. The Navajo Reservation is it's almost it's twenty seven thousand, uh, almost twenty eight thousand uh, square acres. So, or excuse me, square miles. And, uh, you know, that's a lot of territory, uh, 28,000 square miles and about 300,000 people. So it's a sparsely populated region. And there is uh, there are so many intriguing things that happen on the reservation. And the native people, you know, they just accept that these creatures exist. They, they know they're there. So it's, it's not a question for them. And that's one of the things that... Uh, I find fascinating, you know, going into these tribal lands, if you're able to make some inroads and actually talk to to people who live there. And, uh, you know, if you approach it in a respectful manner, you'll hear some pretty incredible things. So what what do they believe in? What is their what is what do they believe that uh, Bigfoot is? Is it one of their gods? Is it one of their um, family members? Oh, no, they don't believe it's a god. Uh, you know, speaking, um, <laughs> I, I hesitate to speak for the Navajo people. Obviously, I'm not Navajo, but, you know, and, and uh, with all due respect, uh, you know, what a lot of the, the Navajos I've had the honor of sitting down and talking to express to me is that they believe uh, it's just a, another uh, living creature, another race of uh uh, being sometimes I say you know it's another tribe, and that there is an agreement, you know that they'll uh, leave them alone, and and the Sasquatch will will leave the Dene alone. So, what intrigues me when you get into the native viewpoint of these creatures is that there are aspects of the Sasquatch phenomena that make a lot of, uh, you know, the, <laughs> I'm trying to think of a, a kind way to say this. There, there are a lot of cryptozoologists who are very fixated on this being simply an undiscovered ape, for instance. And that may be the case. However, personally, I think there are some strange aspects to these creatures. And there are so many of these encounters, for instance, where the uh, Sasquatch will be there one moment and then gone the next, uh, where 
trackway is just suddenly end. You know, I've had I had the Navajo Rangers tell me about a case that they were called on and they followed a trackway uh, that appeared to be a you know these very large footprints appeared to be a Sasquatch trackway. It went up on a ridge and it suddenly just stopped. There was no there were no trees. There were no rocks. There were nothing. There was nothing for this thing to, you know, get on or climb away or, or anything like that. The tracks were just gone. They just vanished. So, you know, those those are pretty fascinating encounters when you hear these things. And it's sad that, you know, a lot of cryptozoologists, they, they need to believe in the blood and bones angle um, and, and nothing else. And if you start mentioning anything remotely paranormal about these creatures, it, it gets a lot of people worked up. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm not jumping to the conclusion that there's UFOs flying around, you know, dropping Sasquatch around the planet. I, I don't think that at all. But I do think that these are creatures that have some kind of abilities that we don't quite understand yet. Uh, there's accounts where hunters talk about seeing these things and having them in their sights but not being able to pull the trigger because they feel like something happens. You know, uh, something happens on a, a mental level. They, they feel, uh, some of them report, they just feel, oh, it looked too human. But other people report, I, I just, I couldn't have pulled the trigger if I wanted to because I just didn't feel right. Something, you know, something was messing with me. Something, uh, you know, screwed with my perception. So, I think Nick's piece on infrasound is a very good potential. You know, I think these creatures may have some kind of um, ability that we don't understand that is akin to, um, uh, let me put it this way, you know, imagine, I, I use this analogy a lot, imagine the first person that ever saw a chameleon. So he's looking at a lizard, you know, on a tree, and all of a sudden that lizard's just gone. Uh, that probably would have been a pretty strange experience because he had no concept of an animal that could change the color of its skin in order to blend into its environment. So, you know, what if these Sasquatch, even though they're large creatures, you know, what if they have something akin to that, something that allows them to, uh, you know, seemingly vanish or maybe even emit something that screws with our perceptions. So that's what appears happens. Uh, and, I bring all of this up because when you start getting into the native lore and how they relate to these creatures, they really talk about similar things. They say, well, they're able to, you know, walk out of this world. And if you try to translate that, you come up with a couple of different things. Well, either they're talking about some kind of dimensional portal, which, you know, goes in a whole different direction, or they're talking about something that is creating the perception that these things have vanished. And um, I realize I went off on a whole tangent there, but it's it's pretty fascinating no, no, it's material to start delving into. No, you talk about the infrasound. So infrasound is a certain frequency. Is it twenty megahertz and below? Yeah. And, so uh, it, it it disrupts the human nervous system, is what it does, and it can create a range of things that. Um, skew you know our perceptions our human perceptions uh, a lot of people report that it, it creates a high degree of, of nervousness or even fear and it's a defense mechanism uh, for some animals now we have a question coming in david from uh derek in the chat room 
and he is asking there are so many videos out there claiming to have captured a bigfoot sighting question does the guest know of one that may be the best recorded sighting if there is one patterson gimlin <laughs> which one patterson gimlin film you know that that's uh you know the problem is i think we we get into the modern era whether we're talking about cryptids or, or ufos or hauntings or anything else there are just so many videos out there that are questionable it, it's it's infuriating to a degree for researchers like us um and, you know, I, I mean, I know people that spend hours trying to analyze those things and trying to figure out, okay, is this genuine? Is this real? Uh, what is this? And uh, it, it, it gets really aggravating. But, you know, I, I haven't seen, I've seen some interesting modern videos, but um, the ones I've seen that are, I think, the most genuine are not openly available to the public right now. Okay, Why are so, they not available to the public? Is it just the researchers not, you know, sending out, you know, getting out the research, or is somebody stopping this? No, I don't think anyone's stopping it. I mean, the ones I'm aware of, you know, again, going back to um, Native American connections, uh, tribal connections, I, I've seen a couple of pretty intriguing videos from uh, both Navajo researchers and Apache researchers that, uh, you know, look genuine to me but they're keeping this information just for themselves at the moment because they don't uh you know they just don't want to go into the fray with it so to speak at, at this time um oh bring attention to it's, them. yeah well it's you know it's one thing to have a, a piece of footage like that and it's another thing to release it to the public and and everything that that entails <laughs> you know, uh, there, there's so many of these video clips that get put out there. And one of the red flags for me is, you know, these things get put out and they're immediately, you know, trying to sell it to a, a news site and things like this. And that makes it questionable to a degree. You're thinking, OK, what's the you know, who took this and what's their motivation? Uh, but, you know, it's pretty intriguing to me when I have a researcher say, hey, I want you to look at this. I want your opinion. You know, we're not releasing this, but. You know, just see what you you get from it, and uh, you know, there's a good handful of those out there that I'm aware of that are pretty pretty convincing. Well, before we go on break, David, I want you to give everybody uh, some web addresses where they can go check out uh, all your information and your books and what books that you've written so far, so that they can check it out during break, also as well. Best place is Amazon.com for the books. Uh, there is. Oh, gosh, there's a whole range of them on there that are in print currently are the Woodknots Volume 1 and 2. Volume 3 will be out probably uh, roughly by the end of this month or the beginning of next month. has a whole chapter in there for me on sightings in Arizona. Uh, there's also, let's see, the Black Eyed Children Revised Edition, which came out at the beginning of this year. It has a, a new chapter in there. Uh, from Brian Bethel reflecting back 20 years after his encounter. Uh, there is uh, Haunted Toys, which is listed. There are Strange Intruders, which is probably um, people people just love that book for some reason. It talks about a range of phenomena. And um, 
Oh, gosh, I've got a handful of other things and a lot of projects coming out this year, too. There's also a blog, although it's not been very active the past year because of my research and work. That is at uh, twocrowsparanormal.blogspot.com. There is also a YouTube channel if you Google Society of the Supernatural that has some, uh, excuse me, investigations of haunted locations that I have done. And there are some DVDs that are available. Again, check the blog. Uh, those are um, investigations of various haunted locations around the country. Lots of other stuff out there. Lots more coming this year. Very awesome. And if you all missed any of that, we're going to have David give the web addresses and everything again near the end of the show. But right now, we're going to go ahead and prepare the to be able to uh, go on break. And we shall be right back after this. Don't go anywhere. We will be coming back to you talking about Dogman and possibly also I think some Chupacabra talk also there's a lot of people on the chat room talking about Chupacabra so get ready it's coming to you right after all of this that the red pill is bitter in my stomach, but I can't get it back out. I think because I have to. I speak because I have no choice. I walk through this dark age we're in with open eyes. Listen to Open Eyes on LateNightInTheMidlands.com And together, maybe we won't stumble and fall. The LNM Radio Network offers a chat room for you, the listener, to connect with others who are interested in the topics and guests that the LNM Radio Network brings to you. During the live shows, the hosts will even visit the chat room and chat with you, the listener. Click on the big red chat and listen button at the top of the website and join us. No subscription is needed at either lnmradionetwork.com or latenightinthemidlands.com. Why subscribe to Late Night in the Midlands, you ask? Well, I'll tell you why. Late Night in the Midlands covers everything, and through the thousands of expert guests who have joined Michael Vera on his show, come pieces of the big puzzle, which started many years ago. Michael and his guests reveal information dating back to the beginning of time. To this very moment, Michael Vera not only brings you the best guests with the best information, but Michael is not afraid to call out those who are less than honest. You see, in this day and age, we need a radio show we can count on and a radio host we can trust to expose the truth one show at a time. So become a late-nighter and subscribe now. Talk radio like no other. Late Night in the Midlands, bringing the truth back to talk radio. 
Do you need toner for your Epson, Hewlett-Packard, Canon, Brother, Apple, or Sharp printers? Look no further than Laser Technologies. In business for over 20 years, they offer the lowest prices on toner on the web. They can also repair your laser printers and toners fast and easy. Call their expert staff today at 561-792-9600 or email us at service at laser-technologies.com for all your toner needs. All toner is shipped nationwide. Why wait? Get the lowest prices on toner. Call or email us today. There is a better radio show, beyond that which is known to the people. It is a radio show more informative than others, and as timeless as infinity. It is the equilibrium between light and dark, between the sheeple and the paranormal, and it is heard at the base of man's ignorance and at the summit of his knowledge. This is the radio show of imagination, a show we call The Secret Teachings. back live and i want to thank everybody for being here and following us on the show we appreciate it very much my name is eddie hill this is paranormal analytical and i have renee rodriguez our co-host with us and we have our special guest david weatherly who has been talking to us about the black eyed children he's also been talking to us about wood knocks and bigfoot and on this part of the show we're going to be going into uh more or less the Dogmen, werewolf, skinwalker type things that are seen around the area. And also I want to talk to him a little bit about chupacabras as well because this is something that was has been a, going on on the chat room quite a bit. And uh, so, David, welcome back. And, uh, Thanks, guys. You know, talk to us a little bit about uh, the skinwalkers and all of them. Well, first I have to say it, it's really odd you have people talking about El Chupacabra in there because uh, (laughs) I guess these things come in waves sometimes. For some reason, I've gotten a bunch of uh, emails and messages about Chupacabra this week. So I don't know if there was I I didn't see any new sightings or something like that. So I don't know what kind of set that off. I don't know. uh, But that they were, you know, sharing photos of Chupacabras in the chat room. And we've had a whole lot of conversation going on as far as what they are. And I know that uh, a lot of the cryptozoologists uh, have been studying the chupacabra and especially, you know, the differences between the one that is seen here in Texas a lot and reported, you know, which is also what they call the blue dogs in uh, mm-hmm. in comparison to the uh, initial chupacabra sighting that was seen. Uh, where was that? Up in Brazil? I Puerto believe. Rico. Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico in the 1990s. Yeah. But. You know, the um, sightings of these things have gone from oh, Puerto Rico to, of course, uh, Texas and uh, Louisiana. I've had some accounts from, from Louisiana, uh, even o- over into my territory in the southwest. And, of course, pretty far down south in Mexico. I was in uh, Chile a few years ago, and there's there's a fair number of accounts down there. So it's kind of a widespread phenomena. It's it's. It's a fascinating cryptid in that there are different purported manifestations of it, or at least 
uh, you know, maybe two different versions of Chupacabra, like you said. There's the Texas Blue Dogs, which appear to be some type of hybrid uh, canid creature. And then there were the reports out of Puerto Rico, which also uh, I have heard similar accounts of those creatures in places like Florida, Louisiana, and and in Central and South America. And those are, are far creepier looking. That's not a canid at all. It's a you know a bipedal creature with uh, these weird spikes off the back of its uh, you know coming off its spine. And uh, of course, it, it purportedly sucks the blood out of farm animals, just like the canids do. Right, and I remember not too long ago, well, actually, it's been quite a while, actually, but uh, uh, Ken Gerhard uh, had called me one to, uh, at one point. Uh, he had a, a one of the blue dogs in the back of his vehicle that was pretty rotted. Yeah. He was running down the road with the windows open because it was smelling so bad, <laughs> yeah. and he was looking for an ice chest or something to, to, to store it in that he picked up from some people, I believe, over in East Texas somewhere. And, yep. uh, <laughs> I remember so that story. I, I had to, I had to laugh at that. Cause I, when he called me, he, he all he could hear was wind brushing through his car and, you <laughs> yeah. know, like, Oh man, it smells so bad. <laughs> I, I tell you, I saw a very bizarre canid in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And of course, anybody who's familiar with that place knows that's Mothman territory. Uh, we did an investigation there a few years ago, Society of the Supernatural did, and <clears throat> we, we came across a very curious find. We were out, this was in the winter, it was uh, in December, as I recall, and we were out around the bunkers, nobody really in town that time of year or anything, and, uh, you know, for, for people who've never been back there, the... The bunkers, you know, they, they dot the woods all back in that region. Some of them you can spot. Some of them are completely grown over. And uh, a good portion of the road is, is just gravel. We were driving uh, pretty far back around where the bunkers are. And uh, my uh, the cohort that was with me was a fellow named Dave Spinks, another investigator. And he was, he was at the wheel. We passed a pull-off area just off the road, and there was a carcass laying in this pull-off area and we drove just past it and then dave stopped we backed backed the car up and got out to look because there was something very odd about this carcass so when we approached it we found that it was a deer and that the entire top of the head had been sheared off and you know, this was one of the most bizarre things that I've ever seen. It really was, uh, you know, like a lot of the cattle mutilations that you hear about. There was no blood anywhere on the ground or around this carcass. Uh, we couldn't determine what had cut the top of this this thing's head off. Uh, it, it was almost like it had just been ripped off. Uh, but you know, the top portion wasn't there. Our initial thought was, okay, well maybe this was trophy hunters just after the antlers. Uh, but you know, they took more of the head than just the, uh, than just the antlers and the lower jaw was still there. So as we were looking at this carcass, we started, uh, backing away from it. You know, there were no tracks around it. There were no vehicle tracks and, 
this is this is dirt and gravel. You can see when a vehicle pulls off. So it was very strange that there were no, you know, if someone had had it, for instance, on the back of a truck or something, they would have had to have dumped it off. And there were no tracks in this area where this pull-off was. Uh, but it got even more bizarre, guys, because as we're standing there looking at this thing, uh, we realized no tire tracks, no footprints, nothing around it. And standing there for a few minutes, I looked at Dave and I said, you know, what's really bizarre about this? I said, no scavengers have touched this carcass. I said, not only that, there are no bugs on it. And, you know, it, it wasn't a fresh kill. It had clearly been there probably at least for a couple of days. There are a lot of scavengers back there. You know, there's there's buzzards and, uh, you know, a wide range of, you know, the stray dogs and coyotes and everything else back there. So it's, it's very odd that nothing would touch this carcass, you know, after it having been there for two or three days. So as we're standing there sort of, uh, puzzling over this and expanding our, our search around the circumference of this carcass, uh, we had gotten back out in the road and uh, trying to find you know signs of anything that would help explain why this thing was there or how it was there. And uh, we looked down the road ahead of us, and there was a canid coming out from the woods on the right side of the road, crossing the road, and... Uh, for all you know, for all, all the uh, all that we could see of this thing, it looked very much like one of these Texas blue dogs. Uh, it looked like it had uh, mange or no little to no fur. It was very haunched, uh, long tail, and it was walking in just a, a sort of loping, very bizarre manner. And uh, you know, it crossed the road very slowly. We we jumped in the car and tried to to slowly get up there, and it would was just sort of watching this. We did get a shot of it on a GoPro camera that we had mounted in the car. Unfortunately, it's a little bit of a distance away, but, um, you know, at least it's something. And of course it, it suddenly just bolted and took off in the woods on the other side of the road. And, uh, we rushed up there, but it was, it was long gone. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's a fascinating thing. There's a whole sequence of this. We did a, a DVD called the point pleasant files and, you can see the audio clip, um, you can see uh, photos, excuse me, of a carcass that we discovered, as well as the shot that we got of this this canid creature. That is incredible. You know, and, and I've heard so much about the these these uh, chupacabras and, and how they, you know, operate as far as just the puncture wounds are found on the animal. And there's so many people at, that... I know Ken has went up and interviewed, you know, Ken Gerhardt and, uh, you know, they've had problems, you know, with their chickens and, you know, not only, you know, goats, but, you know, other farm animals as well, you know, have been, uh, oh, yeah. attacked and, you know, brutally killed by these things. But, uh, I mean, it, there, there's a, there's a lot of different variants of them, you know, that I've heard about, you know, like you'd said, and, uh, like these blue dogs, you know, I think they're, uh, their own particular species you know maybe some sort of uh uh canine that has uh bred with maybe coyotes or something and through the years have you know morphed into this uh creature you know this hairless dog of some sort but uh let's talk a little bit about the skinwalkers and what you feel they are so skinwalkers uh for people not familiar with the term 
is very unique to the Southwest, specifically to uh, the Diné, the Navajo Nation. And uh, a skinwalker is, uh, first of all, it is a witch. And I have to clarify that uh, because people automatically, you know, leap to the Western definition of witch. In the Navajo culture, uh, a witch is a person who practices black magic. Uh, they're someone who has gone out of harmony with life, with the universe, and they've decided to follow a dark path. Um, these are people that go through a very defined set of rituals in order to become a skinwalker. And being a skinwalker literally means that the person can shapeshift by using the skin of another creature. Now, what is most common is to hear about these things taking the form of a coyote or a dog or a wolf. Uh, but when you really delve into the lore, you will find that they can shapeshift not into uh, just animals, but also into other human beings if they were to steal that person's skin. And it is as gruesome as it sounds. Uh, the, <clears throat> the set of rituals that they have to go through in order to become a skinwalker are pretty disturbing things uh, that they had to accomplish. And once they're able to do this, they have a wide range of powers. Uh, Shapeshifting, of course, is one of them. And they can take the full form of the animal or they can take this in-between form where they, you know, would appear to be something akin to a werewolf, you know, a bipedal wolf or coyote-like creature uh, that has the abilities of both an animal and a human. Uh, they also employ a range of various um, things that uh, they utilize to harm their enemies, such as bone darts, uh, which is a tiny sliver of bone that is shot through a blowgun, and it is coated with poison to make the person sick. Uh, they use various powders that will sicken people and uh, a range of other things. So it, it's, it's a pretty fascinating topic to delve into it's also an extremely difficult topic to delve into because the Navajos themselves uh, and I'm talking about probably you know 97% of them will not even say the word skinwalker because they believe that merely talking about skinwalkers attracts their attention and that is not something that you want to do now, the Ute Indians also uh, practice that uh, same skinwalker type uh, technique, don't they? They do. They talk about it. Um, you know, when you delve into that, you find that there was a lot of um, exchange between the Navajos and the Utes. And you hear some different stories. You know, you hear that the Navajos curse the Utes. Uh, with a skinwalker curse, um, you, you hear some different things. Um, the Utes, of course, have territory further north and uh, at various points in history had conflict with the Navajos. Uh, it's, it appears to me, you know, through my years of researching it, that they had some kind of similar tradition um, 
so do the Apaches, for that matter. But you hear a lot less about it amongst those two tribes. And what happens is um, when you really delve into it, to, to me, it seems the core of this really came from the Diné, from the Navajo, and possibly spread out over time to the other cultures. Uh, but, yeah, you know, there, I think some of it also melded with uh, the other tribes because of cultural influence. You know, there are other Native American cultures that talk about shape-shifting. You go up to the, the north and you hear about the Wendigo, which is something that, you know, uh, is once a human and shapeshifts into this other creature. So it is kind of a theme that you hear in different tribal cultures, but the the Skinwalker mythos is pretty unique, and it's something that's very relevant still today because there's a great deal of fear around the very topic when you go to the, the uh, reservation itself. Now, there is a difference between the Skinwalkers and also... Uh, these uh, dogmen or werewolves, is there not? Yeah, it seems to be. You know, you go to these dogman accounts, and people are really fascinated with this right now. There are so many of these encounters being reported. But really, uh, if you go back to the early settlement period, there's, there's a fair number of accounts of werewolves that you can dig up in places like Pennsylvania and New York and, and the Northeast because, uh, you know, these European settlers came over and they brought that tradition uh, with them and they were seeing something that they believed was, uh, you know, were werewolves. Now, in your opinion, do you think these werewolf-like creatures truly exist? Man, you know, I... <laughs> uh, I, I hesitate to say either yes or no. I, I don't discount uh, these things, but um, you know, I, I also couldn't sit down and argue with you that you know, yeah, this this proves they exist. Uh, I, I think it's pretty fascinating, and I think these people, you know, I've spoken to witnesses that I believe were being honest and and did have some kind of bizarre experience, and and this is what they believe they saw. Uh, I personally have seen enough strange things in my life to know that, you know, the potential is very real. It's, it's very possible that these things are out there. You know, there's a lot of uh, police officers and uh, people that, you know, are, you know, in government type positions who have reported these things and have having encounters uh, oh, yeah. that have literally scared the bejesus out of them, you know, when they, they've had their encounter. And a lot of them have been at close range. Uh, there was one uh, police officer that literally said he was afraid to pull the trigger on one that he had in his sights with the 12 gauge with buckshot and slugs and uh, within 15 feet of him. And he was just happy that it decided to go away. He didn't want to face the outcome if he pulled the trigger. Uh, that's how unsure he was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of those accounts out there. And, you know, that's a great example. I mean, like I said, these people are seeing something and. You know, how do you explain that? Uh, the <laughs> uh, Again, you know, you revert back to the idea that there's a lot of wilderness area and the potential for there to be many things that we, we don't commonly accept as existing uh, out there in the in the wilderness. Well, you know, like I said, I mean, there, there are so many people that have reported seeing these things. And uh, there's a lot of... Uh, stories where people have shown up to or or literally have gone missing and these uh 
dogmen or werewolves have been blamed for these disappearances as well in certain areas. Yeah, and what's fascinating about this stuff to me too, Eddie, is that you know I delve into a lot of history and, and folklore and everything, and you have to uh, you have to look at that and try to see it through a modern lens and understand, okay, what exactly was going on here? Because, you know, a lot of folklore is rooted in reality and these people were trying to explain and describe what they were experiencing and what they were seeing. And this werewolf folklore, it goes really far back in history all over Europe uh, and, you know, was brought to America. But the, the big question, I guess, is what else was brought to America when those settlers came? Exactly. I mean, they could have brought anything at that point in time. And, you know, and if you look at some of the history concerning the werewolf, you know, the UK has had a lot of uh, stories and, and things. And I believe that's where it initially had popped up from was in, uh, you know, outside of the United States at first. And even Absolutely. like up in Louisiana, you know, they're known as La Rougarou. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, yeah. there's a lot of uh, stories about those as well. Yeah, and there's that French influence, you know, which you go back in uh, French history, and there are a lot of accounts of, of werewolves, of course, uh, you know, they go pretty, pretty far back in history. And, uh, you know, a whole nother track to that is really, if you start delving into uh, shamanic and magical traditions, there is an age-old concept of the ability to shapeshift or transform to some degree. Uh, within a lot of tribal cultures around the world. We see that in modern terms with the concept of the skinwalker uh, because the whole idea is that these people uh, go through a set of rituals and initiations in order to gain the ability and learn the skills to transform into something that is beyond human. Uh, and and that's you can easily compare that to ancient werewolf folklore where these people were going through uh, particular magical processes in order to gain the ability to transform into something that was wolf-like yeah absolutely and the difference that i've seen in some of the you know looking into this you know from uh, louisiana's aspect of it is that a lot of these uh rougarou are basically changed uh because of uh, voodoo being involved in that type of a ritual where these creatures have done something wrong and that's kind of like a punishment from what I understand. Right, yeah, and that's, uh, again, that's something that you hear in different, you know, uh, shape-shifting lore that, that kind of circles back around to Wendigo that we were talking about earlier, you know, in the north that uh, is someone who becomes cursed and, uh, you know, has to transform because of evil deeds that they've done. Exactly. You're very, very right. And, and that's a lot of what I've picked up on, you know, dealing with uh, Rougarous and, and that kind of uh, folklore from Louisiana area. Renee, uh, you're sitting there kind of quiet. I know you're taking all this in. I know you've had a lot of questions <laughs> about uh, these types yeah, of I'm just taking. I'm just taking notes. This is a, this is a fascinating topic. Uh, I've heard so many things about the uh, about the shaman shape shifting, and um, a lot of them. What I understand is they shape shift to get knowledge from, uh, like I guess the other side. So you could you could transform into uh, a, a a panther, or you can transform into uh, a snake, and they get another perspective in life. Now, that's what it seems like. That's what most of them are trying to do. Is just trying to. Uh, I guess know the real reality of you know reality, so that's why they shape shift into another another form, another life form, 
so they can understand, like I said, another perspective of being, I guess, alive, I guess is the best way of saying it, or here on this plane of existence. Uh, what do you what do you think of of them doing uh, shape shifting? I mean, well, on purpose. You, yeah. So you delve in. You know, you're sort of talking about a different track because you're talking about people who are doing this for a positive reason uh, or attempting to do it for a positive reason. So you get into shamanic traditions and you're looking at this concept that uh, you know a, a particular person may have a spirit animal or a power animal that they're able to connect with that grants certain qualities or perspectives that a normal human wouldn't have. Now, some of that can be taken very literal because if your totem was a hawk, you might have, you know, extraordinary vision and be able to uh, get a greater perspective on things. So, uh, you know, a a bear, you may get um, a different level of strength. So if you look at the the purely practical aspects of that, uh, some of these practitioners are trying to connect with an animal in order to bring through some of its qualities to enhance their own lives. And that's a, that's a very different track than uh, something that may be manifesting as, as a skinwalker or rougarou that's taking a very dark and more sinister track of doing something like shape-shifting. Alrighty, buddy. Well, listen, man, we're just about out of time. David, I appreciate you being here. Everybody, uh, you know, please visit his website. David, if you want to go ahead and give those sites out again and where people can go check out your books and all the information that you have and uh, so they can uh, get more knowledgeable in this, uh, I'd appreciate it. You know, we'll go from there. Sure. Check out uh, the Amazon author page, which has a lot of my stuff on it. Um, just Google my name on Amazon, David Weatherly, or check out twocrowsparanormal.blogspot.com. Uh, you'll see a lot of the information on there. The DVDs are also linked through there that are uh, investigations of haunted locations. Three of those out currently, Point Pleasant, uh, Sweet Springs, West Virginia, and a, a really cool site in Mississippi. Um Lots of new stuff coming up. Woodknots 3 is coming up this year. Uh, so are uh, a range of other projects that I've been working on. And, uh, yeah, keep checking them on Facebook, of course, and other social media, Instagram. Uh, check it out. If anybody has any questions, just uh, shoot me an email through my blog. Absolutely incredible. Thank you so much, David. David Weatherly, everybody, we appreciate you being here, buddy. Thank you so much for all the information. It's been great talking to you. I've been looking forward to this show for quite a while, and I'm glad we finally did it because this is just awesome, and this is all great stuff. Thanks, guys. My pleasure. All right, brother. You take care, everybody. Once again, this is Eddie with Paranormal Analytical and my co-host, Renee Rodriguez. Good night, all. Good night, everybody. Take care, and we want to thank you all for your uh, time, and thank you all for being with us tonight. So... We shall talk to you next Thursday.